Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Aaron Carrico about his book, Black Market, The Slave's Value in National Culture After 1865, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Dr. Carrico received his PhD in American Studies from Yale University. Black Market explores the ways in which the capital and slave people represented and were before the Civil War did not disappear following emancipation, but simply morphed into new forms. By examining a wide array of materials from literature, art, law, and more, Dr. Carrico demonstrates the myriad of ways slavery continued to be integral in America after 1865. In doing so, Dr. Carrico is able to show just how much the project of emancipation and its radical potential have been left incomplete. Dr. Carrico, welcome to the program. Hey, Derek. Thanks. So I guess to get things started, can you tell us how you came to this topic and why you decided to study it? It grew out of a project actually initially um, thinking about uh, the plantation um, as an institution that um, survived 1865. And as I sort of went deeper and began um, revising that, which was um, which was my dissertation project, I, um, I became aware that it was actually much more than that. It was much more about the entire sort of mode of production, what I'm calling slave racial capitalism after Walter Johnson, which he outlines in um, his history, River of Dark Dreams, um, and that it, you know, it was still very much a sort of um, national, um, it was a national system um, that was, uh, that was sort of being reiterated after 1865, um, that formal abolition in fact, left intact. I mean, that it was, you know, just sort of a series of laws and wand waving um, in a lot of ways, just a sort of uh, kind of magical thinking of change in status. Important, but left so much um, still to do. And going along those lines, why did you choose to title the project Black Market? I came to the title... um, black market, um, partly through thinking about um, the nation as a market in slaves, which um, Walter Johnson, um, among others, Trish Lofren, um, a literary scholar, um, has also sort of done work around this, um, that sort of the ideas of nationalism are um, routed in many different ways through um, slavery, anti-slavery before 1865. Um, And it also, I mean, this thinking about this idea of black market, um, it, and I mean, and I should say like my contention um, in this book is, you know, that um, slave racial capitalism uh, is not in fact disarticulated by uh, formal abolition. Um, in fact, that mode of production is still very much left intact, and it is just sort of um, transformed uh, in in various ways. Um, but uh, the the way that slavery and 
capitalism are sort of slavery's grafted onto articulated with capitalism before 1865, um, which reveals, you know, I mean, as a sort of slew of um, thinkers and, you know, what is now called the history of capitalism have um, shown uh, that, you know, that, that slavery was in fact uh, at the sort of cutting edge of so much modernization um, in the United States, various sort of accounting practices, um, sort of, you know, like really rational um, managerialism by overseers. Um, I mean, double entry bookkeeping, like the list goes on and on. Um, but uh, this, this idea that they sort of form a functional unity, but also, right. I mean, that the slavery is something other than capitalism, even though it sort of works within it, and that there's a kind of more um, uh, naked um, domination, um, that the commodification of laborers themselves um, in chattel slaves um, is sort of um, always stitched into capitalism. I mean, so that, you know, we talk about racial capitalism, um, Cedric Robinson's term, uh, we're um, not saying that there is in fact, you know, some capitalism that is not already racial. And one of the questions that I'm trying to explore in this book is, you know, if we are thinking about uh, this sort of even larger conjuncture of slave racial capitalism, which brings into view, like, these forms of, of domination of expropriation um commodification of uh humans that that too may be really sort of foundational to capitalism you know it's that it's always sort of reiterating these forms in the same way that it's reproducing racial difference among other forms of difference um and Furthermore, that uh, blackness, right, sort of take the one half of that title of black market um, is, is itself sort of rooted from the very beginning, um, the beginnings of the Atlantic slave trade. Um, blackness is sort of rooted as a form of racialization um, in the, the sort of capitalist mode of production. I mean, that, you know, like the trade and slaves as frank wilderson has argued among others like you know is what gives um what gives european uh capitalism uh a kind of jump start um and uh that blackness itself in this category of the negro as cedric robinson um writes about it is um is a kind of it's like an empty cipher it's a sort of it nullifies um, all of the sort of histories and traditions, you know, going back millennia of African peoples. And instead, um, as he writes, um, the, the Negro is a consequence that's masquerading as an anthropology and uh, history. Um, and uh, that this sort of, that it's, Blackness is always kind of linked to this commodification that one finds within the slave market. Um, and um, for me, this was, in fact, still very much the case 
after 1865, even as supposedly the law had changed the status of the enslaved and, you know, it made them formally um, equal, you know, formally free, formally citizens. But in fact, there are in many different registers, um, there are um, ways that this kind of commodification, this status as um, an object um, continues to attach to the ex-slave and her descendants. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a way of kind of thinking about, um, thinking about the, <laughs> the, the nation state, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and I guess also I, I have to say that the, there's a way that, there's a way that the nation, right, even as it is always about a kind of, um, futurity and thinking about it sort of progress through time is somehow sort of eternal is also as much rooted in a kind of forgetting and that in the u.s this articulation or grafting of slavery with capitalism that has been the sort of font of our liberal universal ideals freedom equality progress and of these sort of modernizing and modernist innovations um is happening at the same time as this repetitive forgetting of that relation between slavery and capitalism that enables white supremacy and black fungibility and nothing in 1865 changes that. Yeah, I think, and I think it's really important to think about, you know, when we have a lot of studies coming out in recent years that show just how integral slavery was to, you know, the formation of capitalism um, in, you know, the antebellum United States and particularly the antebellum South, which has always sort of been thought of as, you know, this agrarian pre-modern time. And so we have a lot of these studies showing that. And then, you know, with the black market and sort of that just terminology in and of itself, we you sort of see that, you know, this sort of entanglement of slavery, blackness, race in capitalism does not disappear when you have, say, formal abolition and emancipation. Right. That's absolutely right. Um, yeah, I mean, but I, I guess I would... I would say, I mean, just sort of like continue on the the track that you were um, of that question and what I was saying before. I mean, um, it seems like I mean we can kind of regard um, blackness as a sort of a, a form, a kind of formalism even that originated um, from this contradiction of the human as um, species being, let's say, and the human as an article of exchange, as chattel, as, you know, livestock um, from the sort of commodification that's sedimented in the Atlantic trade. Um, and like as such a form, um, which is also always historical, um, blackness is... Um, it's kind of an ideology in its own right. It's sort of, uh, which is how Jameson um, describes um, genre actually. And uh, I, I guess I think of this, uh, Sylvia Winter, you know, writes about like genres of the human 
um, and um, thinking about it along these lines about blackness as an ideology that's sort of sedimented as form um, that persists across time. I mean, there is something, even it is, as it is mutating, changing. I mean, so in my book, like, you know, it, it's initially sort of rooted in the, in the plantation, but over the arc of my book and then into the, you know, like beginnings of the 20th century, like it um, becomes much more anchored um, blackness as racialization um, in the peculiar space, the open air prison of the ghetto. Um, uh, and thinking about that, the way that, the way that blackness sort of persists across time within this mode of production that I'm sort of calling slave racial capitalism. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I think it, it gives us a way to, to, to think about like both continuity and change in a way, for example, that the um, Afro pessimists don't allow us to do um, in that they kind of turn that that synchronicity um, into a kind of ontology. I mean, so that it's sort of, it, it becomes static, right? It's just sort of ontological. Um, and um, I want to, I guess, restore some of the dynamic quality to it. I mean, that it is open to historical change, even as it is like continuously reproduced um, and bears many of the same features from from its beginning, um, centuries ago, 500 years ago. And one of the things that you uh, speak about in the beginning of your book is debt and the idea of what debt is, what it looks like, especially in this you know formally post-emancipation world. And so how do you see uh, debt being integral to how emancipation operates after 1865. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm far from the first person to um, think about um, debt in the context of uh, the Southern United States after 1865. I mean, it is a hallmark of um, sharecropping, um, which is, you know, uh, the the labor system that um, the formerly enslaved are um, conscripted into, um, coerced through every sort of um, legal and extra legal violent means uh, to sort of sign contracts, often with the very people who had enslaved them. Um, such that they would pledge in advance um, a portion of the crop that they would grow over a given year. They would pledge in advance in order to get the um, supplies to be able to grow that crop, which was always cotton. Um, and um, that sort of rubric of um, framework of debt um, and, you know, the the various ways that it, um, you know, facilitates forms of peonage, as Pete Daniel wrote about many decades ago, um, or uh, um, slavery by another name. I mean, 
Douglas Blackman's book. Uh, there's, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a way though that, that debt as important as it is, um, I think, I think it actually kind of, um, too often restricts our scope of vision, um, as historians, as scholars to the sort of forms of physical violence, of domination, of premature death, um, in the Southern states that are inflicted, um, on, um, the ex-slave and her descendants through these, you know, kinds of organized abandonment, um, and racial criminalization. And all of that is really important, but it also can have a way, I think, of of reinscribing the exceptionalism of um, the South as a region um, when it comes to um, when it comes to the legacies of slavery, of racial violence, rather than what I want to do, which is to say, you know, actually, no, this continues to be very much a sort of um, uh, national institution. Um, and, uh, that violence that's in the taking place in the Southern States, um, that Du Bois lays out so well, um, late in black reconstruction and that sort of searing chapter back toward slavery. Um, that violence is always, um, articulated, uh, with modes of extraction of, exploitation of expropriation um so um for example debt you know like has generally been approached as a way of tracking the violation of black bodies and black autonomy which it was um but debt must also be understood as a sort of renovation and refurbishment of slave racial capitalism. Um, and so I wanted to write about debt as a way of writing about the conduits and channels behind debt. I mean, to sort of think about credit, right? Which is the, to think about finance, which is the sort of flip side of debt to follow the money. Um, and also to show the way that the law itself, um, follows the money. So the conferral of full legal personhood um, in the 14th Amendment also enables the conferral of debt um, onto, um, onto the freed. And uh, alongside personhood um, as a, you know, kind of recognition and conferral of um, protective rights of civil rights i mean which are nonetheless soon stripped away um there is this that sort of like uh utopian i guess aspect of of personhood a sort of you know reparative which is the way we tend to think about 1865 this is what happened um even if there were setbacks but that um alongside that recognition um There's also personhood we have to understand as um, a force of repression um, in a capitalist liberal democracy. I mean, that it's a means of 
accumulation and in the case of black Americans of outright domination. Um, so the toothlessness of formal abolition um, allows for this momentous enshrinement of black civil rights into the nation's founding documents. Um, but then that's wholly co-opted by slave racial capitalism um, through the personhood that's legally recognized in the corporation, as I talk about um, in chapter one. Um, and the, corpora- the corporation's personhood, its, its liberties are affirmed through this very law, um, public law, the 14th Amendment, um, that was you know, meant to be a sort of bulwark of abolition um, three decades after 1868, um, in this case, Allgaier v. Louisiana. Um, and in uh, that case, which is sort of affirming uh, the, the liberties of the corporation um, uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court, setting a kind of precedent um, that that case centered around a, um, a cotton trading firm in Louisiana that was seeking marine insurance from, uh, from a New York firm, which tells us a lot about um, the circulation of capital. Um, and, you know, and furthermore, the law itself preserves this engine of slave racial capitalism, um, articulating the civil rights-bearing personhood of the ex-slave into the very articles of the 14th Amendment. Um, so to the, this, the personhood that's recognized in Article 1 um, is of the 14th Amendment is sutured to the sovereignty of the debt of the United States. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that if, you, um, if you'd like me to, but uh, that's sort of the, the broad outline of, I think, you know, the, the importance of debt is not just um, what's going on um, on the ground and the experiences um, that uh, the ex-slaves are being forced to um, endure, um, but the way that that sort of micro level is also linked up to this much more sort of macro level um, of the of the nation state and even sort of you know more globalized flows of finance capital um, that are ultimately enriching um, northern financiers. I mean, they're they're the ones who are like pulling the levers of southern plantations um, increasingly after 1865, um, and they just look more and more like corporations. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about um, the topics that you study in your book is something that you look at in terms of like the spectacle of blackness and black people and their black bodies. Um, And I was thinking about this, you know, I was reading this book around the same time as, you know, there was a sort of controversy over both. Um, Vogue and even Vanity Fair's depictions of uh, Simone Biles and Viola Davis, respectively, mm-hmm. and sort of the what they're sort of doing with those black bodies and the sort of spectacle on show there. And so how do you see this sort of um, being an outgrowth of, you know, formal emancipation, you know, and how slavery is integral 
after 1865? How do you see the sort of this spectacle forming and at play during this time period? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and yeah, I, I noticed that um, sort of yeah the the um, cover with Viola Davis, which this you know I think the first black photographer. And what was the was it Vogue? Was it no? It was Vanity Fair. Um, I think Viola Davis was Vanity Vanity Fair. Simone yeah. Biles was Vogue. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, but the yeah the photographer mentioned actually that you know. Um, that they were um, trying to kind of re-signify that uh, famous image, um, which I talk about in my book of um, Gordon, um, the slave whose back is bared um, to show um, their scars. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, so so in the context of, of my argument in that um in that second chapter i'm 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 interested in the ways that a kind of um an objecthood which is tied to a commodity status is is always sort of cross-hatching um black subjecthood and liberal recognition um as um as person or a citizen um and uh i mean and frederick Douglass um talks about this even before 1865 in uh, his second autobiography my bondage and my freedom which um was published in 1855 he he goes back and glosses his experience with um, the white abolitionists um, and the ways that they sort of positioned him on stage um, to, you know, maintain a little of the plantation manner in his speech, as they say, um, to um, not do the thinking instead to just be a kind of machine that's sort of um, reiterating the facts of slavery to these Northern audiences who, um, who are always uh, suspicious of, um, you know, of whether or not Douglas or any other fugitive is in fact really a slave. And, there's a way that um, this dynamic um, of um, of the slave, the ex-slave, having to sort of um, continually present their um, bodies for uh, inspection is, um, and their sort of, you know, in the case of Gordon, right, like their, their wounds for um, inspection for uh, like a white liberal audience to, um, to read, to find sympathy in, to find some sort of like aesthetic um, titillation through actually just reinscribes um, blackness as sort of... Um, existing as a kind of um, an aesthetic artifact for whites. Um, and 
that it is also still a kind of um, an object of exchange. Um, Brian Wagner talks about um, about you know um, blackness as uh, being being an object of exchange without being a subject to exchange. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I think that that dynamic continues. I mean, it sort of persists um, after freedom, um, so-called. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean that there's, yeah, there's a, there's a sort of, there's a way that um, what I'm calling spectacle uh, after the, you know, situationist thinker, Guy Debord, society of the spectacle, um, but also thinking actually about um, the way that Du Bois writes about what he calls um, the veil, um, that uh, the spectacle in a way there's, Right there's something that there's something that does happen. There's a historical watershed, a moment in 1865 where the slave's body can no longer be bought and sold in the same way that it could before, um, and instead, um, as I talk about in chapter one, there's a way that sort of the freed person, like personhood, comes to stand in for the body at like it's sort of another level of remove a kind of an abstraction um and blackness itself um in many different ways um continues to preserve that mark of commodity status um i mean it's the you know it's it's the same logic that would go on to inform the creation of um Brands like Aunt Jemima or Uncle Ben, I mean, these sorts of um, spoke servants, but also as much, you know, like the kind of, um, like the racially coded cool of jazz in the early 20th century. Um, it becomes this, um, just a sort of like a, an, an aesthetic object um, for white consumption um which is still grafted onto right onto black bodies um bodies that are racialized rendered as black um so that it's it's a i guess a a, a refurbishment of this sort of racialization but with a with a twist um if that makes sense and one of the things that you look at next is this uh, this piece of literature that I personally hadn't heard about called uh, The Virginian by Owen Wister yeah. and how that sort of, you know, brings into life this sort of modern Western and cowboy idea and how that relates to slavery. Because I think a lot of people who, you know, might uh read or more likely watch a Western based film um, don't really think about slavery. And there's a pretty much a reason for that because it's usually not showcased, but as you show here, you know, this is very much, you know, a product of, you know, this historical legacy and Worcester's novel is sort of contributing to 
you know, as you're talking about, you know, this black market. And so what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very curious um, book. I mean, it's uh, published in 1902, huge um, bestseller. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, so it's, uh, I mean, it's called the Virginian, first of all, I mean, this sort of, it's the uh, widely regarded as kind of the, you know, like first, um, canonical Western, like the sort of, you know, the, the book that sets into place, like the tropes of the genre, um, including like the figure of the cowboy who we still recognize, who is the um, protagonist of the book, the, you know, the eponymous Virginian. Um, this, um, this book, uh, the Virginian, um, that is set in the West, um, is also written, finished in Charleston, South Carolina, as Wister's like note to the, to the reader that prefaces the novel, um, is datelined. Um, and Wister himself is the scion of the grandson of one of the um largest um slave owners in uh u.s history um and so uh i was (laughs) all of that like made me very interested in um reading this more closely because i i felt sure that there was something something more going on than met the eye um in the virginian uh and uh i mean and of course the you know i mean the western as a genre would go on to have such an outsized place in u.s national culture over the course of the 20th century um it's kind of you know, like really symbolically loaded uh, genre. Um, and um, Wister is in that book trying to sort of re-script the um, narrative of the frontier for a dawning corporate era. I mean, he's writing in the moment of the eclipse of the kind of settler colonial project of um colonizing the continent of um north america um and is you know kind of thinking through what you know like what what work what cultural work the frontier um and this figure of the cowboy can be put toward um and uh yeah i mean and it you know i mean it it turns out that, you know, it's about uh, kind of heroizing um, this figure of the cowboy who is a kind of um, manager, uh, middleman, um, and um, and sort of thinking through the ways that he is able to um, exert control, a kind of... Um, kind of charismatic control over uh his underlings and um central i mean at the very heart of this book 
um, is this, you know, sort of racist um, joke. But I mean, I guess I, I feel like I need to say in advance of this that they're like, <laughs> this was actually the chapter that I tried to write first um, uh, in this in this project. And it was like, it was very recalcitrant. Like it was really sort of hard to do. I mean, none of the things that I um, eventually uncover um, through this sort of close reading of this novel are in any way kind of on the surface. Like there are just a sort of few kind of glancing moments of um, of anti-blackness, like the protagonist, um, you know, sings this kind of racist minstrel ditty at one point. Um, uh, but there was a, there was a, a way that I think, um, taking on a reading of the Virginian without knowing in advance what I was going to find, whether it, whether it would sort of come together was partly about like, um, I guess, engaging in, in reading as a kind of historical praxis in a certain way and like putting to the test at a really kind of like local um, scale, a kind of like very specific concrete instance, um, the, some of the arguments that I'm making in the book um, for myself. And yeah, I mean, as I, as I spend more and more time reading um, this book and thinking through it, it just kind of kept unfolding. Um, and yeah, I mean, it turns out that at the sort of center of this, you know, first, this first um, Western um, that really solidifies the genre, there is a, a kind of cloaked, um, riddle, a joke um, told about the Civil War that in, I don't know, in the kind of weird logic of the joke, this kind of dream logic, um, is very clearly um, about like the a trade in slaves um, and about a kind of rewriting of the um, end of the Civil War such that all of the um, slaves are exterminated. Um, it's this very kind of like, you know, fantasy of, of um, white supremacy, of like white patriarchal domination um, that's brought to the fore. Um, and yeah, I mean, and I, I guess, I guess I would have to say, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's important to me for both of those reasons. One, the kind of like the historical precedent um, for this really symbolically loaded genre that the Virginian represents. Um, but also at the same time, I feel like that chapter is in itself a kind of an argument for, um, for reading. I mean, like, not, you know, this uncovering anti-blackness and the kind of genetic material of the Western is, is nowhere sort of present or written on the 
the surface of the text, and yet uh, it's very much there. I mean, once you see it, you can't not see it. And you then sort of see it crop up again in these in these sort of, you know, strange instances. I mean, that sort of conjunction of the the originary frontier in the American project, which is mostly the sort of trans-Mississippi frontier, which is all about the cotton kingdom, all about sort of bringing new lands um, into um, cotton production through slave labor, um, the fight of the Civil War over that um, over that uh, expansion. Um, and that, that's just so repressed, I think, in our kind of historical memory, um, the sort of the southernness of the frontier, where the sort of the South and the West are always kind of um, intimate with each other. I mean, they're always sort of, they're holding hands um, in a certain way. Uh, and um, what the West as a, as a sort of mythic space enables Worcester to do is actually to um, strip out blackness entirely, to kind of expunge it so that the, the West becomes this sort of, you know, this mythic space of, of whiteness. Um, and that's very much sort of how we still um, encounter it today with the odd, you know, occasional exception of, you know, something that um, seems like a weird genre mashup, like, you know, like Tarantino's Django Unchained, where it's like this sort of, sort of like the return of the press. You're like, oh, like, um, it actually makes a kind of historical sense um, in a way. And in speaking about things that are sort of, you know, really known in American culture and sort of, you know, almost cornerstones of thinking about, you know, race and things like that, one of the things that you also look at is sort of, you know, the sort of development almost of, you know, the idea of like poor white people um, in the sort of first part of the 20th century in particular in relation to, you know, the idea of like folklore and what this is doing. And so what relationship do you see between, you know, poor white people and folklore and, you know, again, you know, this, this continuation of the black market? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I was very interested, um, to think through, um, the, historical origins of a kind of um, a particularly American kind of um, modernist style, even that, I don't know, I guess maybe like the, maybe like the foremost exponent of this, like in our, in our moment, maybe like um, Cormac McCarthy, who, you know, like links back to, Faulkner um, and back through Faulkner to Twain, um, which has this, uh, I don't know, there's a, there's a, a strange kind of conjunction of this very sort of um, like earthy um, subject matter or um, people um, along with this really kind of like, uh, um, high flown, um, bookish sort of like, uh, even like philosophical kind of 
diction uh, to render that um, content, that subject material. Um, and uh, that style, um, which is very sort of distinct from, you know, like the, I don't know, the more kind of uh, literary, like, um, Northeastern, like American Renaissance writers and that whole tradition is instead like located um, beginning in the 1830s and 40s on um, the southern frontier. Um, these uh, authors who were all sort of doctors, lawyers, editors who had gone to um, Mississippi and Alabama in the 1830s and 40s to sort of try to, um, well, to strike it rich or to kind of, you know, like, you know, live in the midst of this boom time economy um, around um, slaves, land, cotton, um, or beginning to write these stories, sketches, um, which if we think about them at all are sort of categorized under this idea of the, of um, the humor of the old Southwest, um, the sort of Southwestern frontier writing. Uh, and they just have this very sort of peculiarly modern flavor. And they're all sort of written about in, in this moment in the sort of first decades of the um, middle decades of the 19th century. Um, about poor whites who are sidelined by the growing slave economy um, in Mississippi and, um, you know, I mean, who are um, shunted onto like much, um, much less productive lands who are um, impoverished, um, who, you know, strike the much more, cosmopolitan urban writers of these stories as comical as debased but also as like um there's something about the way that these historical figures of poor whites talk that is has this kind of like very vital kind of um, charge, energy, authenticity um, for these gentlemen authors that they insist is, you know, um, inherently American. Um, that it's this sort of like, uh, it's, it's, it's national um, in a way that, um, that the writing of the Northeast is not. Um, and full of lots of like, you know, very sort of, you know, like strange words, um, and, um, and manners of speaking. And so they, you know, they kind of, um, essentially codify, um, and through sort of uh, orthography, like transcribe, like the speech of these unlettered poor whites onto the page in order to make their own literary personas in, you know, like the literary transatlantic markets of New York, of London, where these stories are being published. Um, and, uh, I mean, what gets left out of that, um, is the 
and which is virtually impossible to find in the historical archive that we have is the intimacy between um, between poor whites and um, enslaved black people um, in this moment in American history um, that, you know, like that sort of that far down at the bottom of the class stratum, like the, the dictates of segregation are much more malleable based on what we do know. I mean, that there is, you know, um, evidence of so much kind of um, intercourse, I mean, both commercial and sexual um, between um, poor whites and um, slaves uh, and that they share a culture. I mean, that there is a, there is a, you know, a kind of, um, that that, that culture of which the sort of, speech, manners, etc., that these stories are filled with, um, that, that culture is a, a testament to, to the, the malleability of the, of the color line. I mean, I don't mean to pitch like all of the sort of poor whites of the South as, you know, like racially progressive by any means at all. Um, but, um, that there, there's, there's a way that, um, that these stories, um, which are so sort of, um, not unlike the, the Virginian, like so sort of insistently whitened, whitewashed, um, and that those are the subjects, um, even as they're kept at a distance by, by these gentlemen authors, um, uh, becomes the sort of kernel of like our conceptions even today of who constitutes a national Folk, um, and that's partly because of the way that a century later, in the 1930s and 40s, um, as the Great Depression is setting in, and there are you know all of these federal um, agents, oral historians, photographers who are fanning out across the country to talk to um, those being sort of pushed off the uh, the lands of the southern states yet again sort of in another moment of modernization um, as um, cotton plantations are increasingly mechanized, um, like tractorization is taking place, um, evicting so many um, Southern tenant farmers and sharecroppers from um, their lands and into the cities. Um, This is sort of being documented for a government archive in the 30s and 40s, but also is being taken note of by cultural producers, tastemakers, um, who are really interested to locate, uh, you know, a, a kind of a preeminently like um, American style um, idiom um, uh, across all the arts, but also in literature. And so one of the places these nationalist literary critics look is back to these um, authors um, and their stories from the 1830s and 40s. Um, and so there's a, there's a way that um, this, this kind of <laughs> second enclosure, after the enclosure of these lands, um, the second enclosure of the folk themselves as a kind of public good um, 
but whitewashed um, is um, generative of our conception of like who is who gets to be an American, right? Of who is sort of most American, and that sort of poor white Southern culture, um, whether it's sort of located in um, Appalachia or elsewhere in the South, has a kind of privileged relationship to like the i don't know the genetic material of of americanness so to speak um that there is there's a way that those people are imagined to um poor southern whites are imagined constructed to be um more american than anyone else even if they are also kind of debased and like need to be saved from themselves that there's something that they have, like there's some sort of knowledge, folkways, um, culture that they possess that is um, that is a sort of uh, a national treasure, and um, and so I'm I'm looking at the way that this actually sort of gets taken up into the canonization of American literature, um, and to our you know um, our sense in the U.S. of the humanities and thinking about, you know, about the sort of the violent histories that get repressed in the making of the human of the humanities. So we have this great book in front of us. Once again, Black Market, uh, The Slaves Value in National Culture After 1865. And so we have that. And I always encourage our listeners to become readers and go grab the book. But in any case, thank you very much for coming on to the program today. Thank you, Derek. I really appreciate it.